0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast.
1: On this edition of Primetime Politics, a federal advisory committee says Ottawa should scrap its quarantine hotels for air travelers arriving in Canada. Since says the system isn't working, and it's taking up too many valuable resources. We'll hear from the federal health minister. In British Columbia, a First Nation has discovered a mass grave of what appears to be more than 200 Indigenous children victims of the residential school system. We will bring you that story. And our journalist panel will be in to look at the latest COVID-19 news and developments in federal politics. But we start with that recommendation from the Federal Advisory Committee on Testing and Screening. That Ottawa should close its quarantine hotels. All international travelers arriving in Canada must stay at a government-approved facility for three days while awaiting the results of a COVID test. Joining me now is Federal Health Minister Patty Hajdu. First of all, uh, Minister Haidu thanks for joining us.
0: Great to be here, Martin.
1: Now you've seen your own advisory committee's recommendation that you scrap the mandatory quarantine hotels for air travelers arriving in Canada. What's the government's response? Is the government going to phase them out?
0: Well, uh, obviously, at some point, we'll phase out the mandatory hotel requirements. But we're working right now with Dr. Tam and the officials at the Public Health Agency of Canada on a safe roadmap for the borders. And, of course, with uh, increasing rates of vaccination here and indeed around the world, we're starting to see options unfold for how we reduce some of those requirements at the border. And if this, uh, re- this report really helps us plan that roadmap in a safe, cautious and prudent way.
1: Okay, but they in the, and you don't need to be reminded of this because you hear this in Parliament every day, but they're pointing out the system doesn't apply to people crossing by land. Many people are paying a fine uh, where it's applied. It's not applied in two jurisdictions. Or they're, staying, uh, they're not staying in the hotel, or they're taking flights to border points in the U.S. where they can walk or take a taxi across the border. But more importantly, the committee tells you that you're wasting precious resources trying to do these quarantine hotels. Wouldn't it be time to actually shut them down, stop it?
0: Well, as I said, Martin, that's exactly what we're working on now with officials through the Public Health Agency of Canada, and of course, with the leadership of Dr. Tam, is a safe and prudent roadmap for reducing some of the quarantine measures and some of the measures at the border. Listen, we'll have measures at the border for quite some time. We know that this virus, although we're starting to see domestic control of the virus, we still have jurisdictions where there are high case rates and struggling healthcare systems. We still see uh, you know, lots of Canadians stepping up for dose one of their vaccine, but we've got a ways to go for second doses. And of course the international scene with uh, the virus is still in a precarious place, including the growth of variants and otherwise, um, I would say, stable countries. And so w- we take the report, we're grateful for the report. Listen, I, I, uh, I am very thankful we have experts and scientists guiding us on this next step, because as you point out, it's complicated and uh, we need to do it properly. Okay,
1: okay but in a word, uh, is this uh, part of your possibilities and when might we know if you're gonna close the uh, hotels?
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, listen, I I think anyone would understand that we're not going to have the requirement to quarantine in a government hotel forever. But they're asking you to do it now.
1: I'm just wondering if you're ready to make a decision now or to act on the recommendations.
0: I think we'll have more to say after we assess the report, look at the operational considerations, speak with the provinces and territories, of course. As you know, Premier Ford, for example, is a, actually asking for stronger measures of the border. So it's important for us to understand how we move forward carefully and cautiously together. This is a Team Canada approach, and we want to make sure that the next steps that we take are in no way going to jeopardize the recovery that we're seeing in our country.
1: Any time frame on that?
0: We'll have more to say in the days and weeks to come.
1: Okay, let's talk about AstraZeneca vaccines. I know you invited the provinces. There, there are tens of thousands of doses of AstraZeneca vaccine that are set to expire on, on Monday, May the 31st. You've asked that any province that might be facing difficulties in getting doses into arms contact you, the federal government. I know that Newfoundland has sent you some doses. Uh, have any other provinces told you that they are not going to be able to do it and ask you for help in the logistics and maybe transferring it to another province?
0: I haven't heard yet from other provinces. Uh, perhaps my officials have, but they haven't updated me on that yet. I certainly was clear in my letter that there is an opportunity to move doses around to provinces in particular that are planning on using doses for, for, for second dose uh, delivery. And uh, we'll continue to work with provinces and territories in this critical mission. Listen think, uh, you know, many provinces are moving towards second doses. Um, Obviously, AstraZeneca, people like me who have received AstraZeneca, especially in the earlier months, are eligible for a second dose. AstraZeneca has a 12-week spacing um, requirement. So we're watching all those deadlines closely and managing supply so that we can best get it into arms. Okay, the
1: um, vaccine passports. About three weeks ago, you told another interview that you you are working on it. It's a live issue, as your officials now say. You're working on them. Any idea when you might have an announcement of when vaccine passports, this is for international travel, uh, might be available? Because so many of the reopening programs and the uh, report that we just saw from your advisory committee on testing and screening all depend on vaccine passports. When might you have an announcement on that?
0: Well, there's a proof of vaccination and there's vaccine passports. And, of course, working on some sort of international standardization approach is exactly what's happening with the G7 and other international bodies, including advice from, uh, you know, regulatory bodies uh, that that deal with transport. So this is really a whole of government approach. Of course, uh, Minister Mendicino and, uh, you know, Minister Garneau and others are, are actively involved in this file. From a health perspective, my role is to work with provinces and territories to ensure that there is a way to share that data while respecting the privacy um, um, considerations of canadians in those jurisdictions and we're having very good conversations with provinces and territories on that very thing
1: Uh, On that front, then, uh, because I mentioned the reopening plans that we're seeing of so many provinces, so many depend on travel between provinces even, depending on, as you say, proof of vaccination. Uh, Are you any closer and do you have a date in terms of when there may be at least between provinces a federally accepted and coordinated proof of vaccination uh, certificate or passport?
0: Well, uh, trouble between provinces is actually uh, within the jurisdiction of the provinces to determine what proof might look like. Certainly, with the uh, ArriveCan app, we can upload uh, documents, um, as you know, including, for example, test documents. Um, and vaccination proof, but uh, in terms of des- uh, in terms of domestic travel, um, provinces and territories are free to choose whatever proof it is that they would require. For example, when I was immunized, uh, Ontario provided me with a PDF that I can print out of my first dose of AstraZeneca. And that may be sufficient for other provinces and territories to accept as proof of vaccination. My role is really not uh, involved in those types of interprovincial travel decisions, but rather uh, the decisions uh, around the international travel and what types of proof of uh, vaccination that Canada would accept for entry. And of course, making sure that Canadians are ready to have proof of vaccination when the world resumes a more robust international travel landscape.
1: Right. As you know, uh, the international travel, the entire travel industry is waiting on that. I don't know whether you gave me a date in terms of when you might be able to announce a, a, the international vaccine passport.
0: I, I don't have a date for you, okay. Martin, because, of course, this work is in progress, not just with Canada, by the way, but de- uh, but right. internationally.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: and so, again, this is standards work that takes time.
1: Can we talk about the reopening plans that we're seeing across the country? Now, m- the majority of provinces have now released their reports. Uh, many of them go, are extensive and they go all the way to a complete... Uh, removal of almost all measures. For example, Alberta by July, uh, they're foreseeing, if everything goes well, that they will have removed almost every public health restriction. Uh, do you have any concern when you look at some of, these, uh, some of these measures which are going further faster than the Health Canada guideline of 75% uh, first dose and 20% uh, percent of second dose?
0: Well, what I would say is that it's important that as decision makers, that we do follow the public health advice and evidence of the many scientific tables that are advising all of us. I know that's hard sometimes because, of course, there's difference of opinions, but the tables themselves actually work through those differences and then provide very robust uh, advice to the governments to, to implement. I think it's very important also to look at the historical advice of the modelers. I mean, it, at the very beginning, if you remember, um, the, the models of those very first, Models said that if you release measures too quickly before you actually had the virus subdued, you would see in some cases resurgence that was worse than the first wave. That's exactly what we've seen. So it's really important that we take it cautiously, that we assess our own epidemiology in each jurisdiction, and provinces and territories will know best uh, what their capacity is from a testing, screening, um, and from a healthcare system perspective to be able to manage those outbreaks. That's really critical, Martin.
1: Okay, but in a nutshell, is there a concern there? Because every time the Prime Minister has addressed this issue, he's looked straight at the camera and made a, had a message for the provinces, and that is, don't do any of this before your caseloads come down. Is there a concern on the part of the federal government?
0: Well, I would say there's a concern if measures are lifted, while there is not the capacity to test, trace, and isolate, indeed, and to take care of people that are sick. And I would say that some of the measurements that some provinces chose uh, during the last wave namely ICU admissions, obviously clearly turned out to be quite dangerous and flawed. So, you know, what uh, what our expectation is, is that provinces and territories follow their own data, their own science, and are looking at measurements that include things like case growth, capacity to test, the ability to keep up with contact tracing, and the vaccination coverage of their population. And that's how we all indeed move out of this more quickly. We can see that even having one province in surge puts an enormous strain on that particular province's health system, and that puts all Canadians in that jurisdiction at risk, not just those who are sick with COVID.
1: Okay, Minister Haidu, I want to thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Thank you very much, Martin. Great to see you. I now invite
2: the House to rise and observe a minute of silence following the tragic discovery of the remains of 215 children at a former residential school in British Columbia.
1: That was a scene in the House of Commons on Friday as members of Parliament observed a minute of silence after the news out of Kamloops, British Columbia, where a local First Nation community says it has discovered a mass grave of what's believed to be the remains of 215 Indigenous children who died while attending the local residential school. Well, joining us to talk about the discovery is Roseanne Casimir. She is the chief of the Tukumups Tsequamuk First Nation. Chief Casimir, first of all, on behalf of all of us, thank you for joining us. But also, I guess I'd, I'd like to express our condolences for what, what is a really tragic discovery. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yes, well, thank you for um, inviting me. Um, I know that it is definitely with heavy hearts here at the Kalmos de um, you know, that we have this unthinkable loss you know, that was spoken about, but never actually documented by the Kalamson Indian Residential School. So this past weekend, um, you know, with the help of the ground penetrating radar specialists, that stark truth of that, those preliminary findings came to light. And, you know, the confirmation of those remains of 215 children you know, were students from the um, Kamloops Indian Residential School.
1: I want to ask you about that. I mean, obviously for you in the community, this is not a secret. This must have been talked about for generations or for years. Um, What led you to go looking for these bodies now and, and in that particular area that you went to?
2: So why we wanted to look for them now was because of the new advanced technology that's in place today. We know that um, a lot of the stories and history was shared amongst our elders and our residential school survivors and our day scholars, You know, sharing in you know the past histories of their experiences at the residential school, and so we know that it's always been something that was never confirmed. And we do know that you know many of our relations throughout MacKeru throughout the province and you know throughout. Um, uh, the families that had shared that they had loved ones that were sent to the school and some of them not going home. And, you know, it was even more horrifying was just knowing that with many of the children, um, you know, to the parents, they were told that um, the children either ran away.
1: Mm-hmm. We've been told that, you, and you mentioned that it was ground, called ground penetrating radar, which is located the, the remains. Um, what do you know? And I understand there's still further steps to do more confirmation and find out more.
2: There's definitely a lot more work um we were just given the preliminary findings and they shared with us you know verbally what those findings were and um you know i know that they were going to be providing us a documented report um in mid-june and you know right now we're just kind of you know absorbing what we heard and we what we've learned and you know going through those stages of grief and loss mm-hmm. and you know we want to ensure that you know we're communicating you know with our membership you know, without You know, and um, it's the home campfire here within Tukumloops. And, um, you know, many students came from across the nation. So we're also, you know, just met with the um, Chwetmik nation chief this morning. And uh, we're also working with First Nations Health Authority. We're working with, um, you know, an amazing, amazing group of uh, leaders and individuals. you know, to um, support, you know, each other and to support our members and to support the families of those who still have unanswered questions.
1: Do we know and do you know um, who it is exactly who are buried there? Is there you know, do, we have a, do you have a clear enough idea of who these 215 people are?
2: We do know that many children um, are undocumented and have not been, um, you, know, uh, you know, identified. And I do know that we still have a lot of work to do on these next steps. And, you know, we do know that the school has been in operation since, you know, the 1890s is when it was built. So, and, um, you know, looking at all those generations, we do know that uh, there's different uh, parameters of knowing with the numbers that were found that, um, you know, because they were undocumented, you know, it's gonna be a lot of Mm -hmm. research as well.
1: Where do things go from here? Because as you say, I mean, over all those years, these are young children who died from probably many causes, neglect, disease, whatever, uh, myriad of causes. Uh, where do things go from here? I mean, you mentioned the impact that it must have on your communities and, and uh, a lot of outreach and a lot of help, uh, a lot of support to the communities. Where do things go?
2: Well, now that the initial shock has passed, you know, we are you know, still grappling with the news but we're definitely taking some very important steps. You know, we're meeting, you know, like I mentioned, we met with our Islamic chiefs to discuss, you know, the next steps for our nation, ensuring that our communities and the nation members are looked after, both in dealing um, with the news and looking at as well as the long-term impacts. Um, You know, we're meeting with the home communities, the First Nations, whose children attended the Indian residential schools. And as caretakers of those lost loved ones, we want to assure them that um, cultural protocols and sensitive manners, you know, as we go through this year investigation process, you know, it's gonna be handled with the utmost respect mm-hmm. and compassion.
1: Maybe just the last question because we only have a few seconds left, but I mean, is this then going to be, um, I mean, I know it's a strange question, but is this gonna be the children's final resting place? Is this land that you own or is this not? Uh, what's the status of this place and this discovery?
2: Well, these lands here are to come to This is our direct um, IR number one, and you know we want to honor and respect those children that have been found. We want to um, ensure that they're never forgotten. Um, you know they came to surface. You know they let us know that they are here, and um, you know we want to truly honor and respect them. And um, we're working with our communities collectively to what that's going to look like.
1: Okay, Chief Casimir, I want to thank you very much, and no doubt we will keep in contact and we will talk with you during the next steps of this process. Thank you very much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, to look at this week's big developments on the COVID nineteen front and in federal politics, I'm joined now by Katie O'Malley. She's a veteran chronicler of Ottawa politics and a contributor to IPolitics. And Nigen Sinclair is a writer and a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. Both of you, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you. Hello.
1: Hello. Okay. Well, let's start with um, Katie. I want to start just briefly with you because this is something that has gotten a few noses out of joint in the Ottawa uh, in the Ottawa press uh, community, and that is that for. All week long, we've been asking the Prime Minister whether he's going to be in person attending the G7 summit in Cornwall, England. Uh, Until Thursday, he was saying that no decision had been made. But then eyebrows were raised when the readout from a discussion he had with the UK uh, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said that Boris Johnson had confirmed that the Prime Minister would be attending in person. What do you make of that?
4: yeah, it doesn't actually surprise me that that is the decision he went with. My suspicion, my hunch is that they were maybe trying to delay as long as possible, saying either way, because as we have learned throughout the course of this pandemic, situations can change really quickly, which means, uh, I mean, things look like they're going pretty well in the UK right now. Uh, Things look like they're going, you know, better than they were in Canada in terms of uh, falling case counts and vaccination rollout. At the same time, there is always that possibility. At this point, I would even say, even though I'm sure right now the prime minister is planning on going. If things were to change in the next week and a half, you could see him, you know, change to pull that back and decide not to go. So in a way, I can understand why he wanted to leave it as long as possible before announcing one way or another whether he was going to go. But yeah, it probably wouldn't have been a terrible idea to maybe put out a statement himself, even in, you know, an hour or two before the readout was going to come out. Just so, yeah, we found out from our own prime minister and not by someone else.
1: Okay. Okay. I want to get to something else, which is... To say the the best, it's a strange story. Liberal MP William Amos from just across the border in Quebec, he's now been involved in a second incident for a second time, the internal feed, the Zoom feed of the parliamentary network. uh, A second incident where he has exposed himself. A few months ago, he was changing in his office after jogging. This time it was urinating into a coffee cup during a late night debate on Wednesday. He has apologized for the second incident. He brought it to light through a tweet. He says he's stepping down as a parliamentary secretary uh, to Seek help. And the story has taken on another twist in that the Conservative Deputy House Leader, Karen Vecchio, has now issued an official press release saying that the Conservatives say that this proves that the Liberals cannot ensure a safe working environment in Parliament. Katie, what do you make of it all?
4: So I tend to take the view that just because the Conservatives put out a press release does not make something a story when it wouldn't otherwise have been. So I'm kind of, you know, rolling my eyes a little bit at this only because. I'm not sure what what exactly is the remedy that that Karen Beckcchi would want the Prime Minister or the Liberal Party to take? I mean are they suggesting that he's actually a menace should he I mean he wasn't even in the House of Commons that was perhaps part of the problem here and said he was His office on a webcam, and apparently not aware that you know images go both ways in this particular incident. So yeah, to me it really feels like kind of a cheap drive my drive by smear. That said, it does seem as though there's something odd going on here because I have to say, if I were an MP who would find myself inadvertently you know flashing the House of Commons and my image in that story going around the world, I got to tell you, I would be pretty darn careful in future about exactly how I conducted myself when I was. Anywhere near my webcam, so I don't know. It really does seem like there might be more to this story, but I'm not. I feel like the conservatives are like kind of just taking advantage of it to get a few cheap headlines.
1: Okay, nigan and, and, and with the proviso that we really don't know mm-hmm. all of the all of the background to this story.
3: What do you make of it? Uh, the best part about this story is that you didn't start with me oh. on commentary. <laughs> so, uh, what, what I would say is the the uh, you know someone's obviously got to teach William Amos but that they the turn camera off function uh i don't think anyone would penalize a sitting member for going to the bathroom and changing and and so clearly there's something else going on here in terms of uh, decency in terms of normalcy or protocols within the house and and particularly there's a, a a real concern here that the if the conservatives want to get attention from this it's it's at the uh at the behest of, you know, talking about people who don't understand technology or perhaps something else going on in terms of mental health, and certainly they have their own worries in order to get their own house in order than bigger issues involving this. I don't see the story going beyond the 24-hour cycle.
1: Okay, well, we'll see. Uh, okay, I wanna thank you on that. Let's get to the weighty issue of COVID-19. Uh, this was a week where we saw all of the provinces, uh, except for, I think, two or three, uh, most of the provinces unveiling their reopening plans. Um, some of them are quite extensive, like in British Columbia and Alberta. And in Alberta, for example, Premier Kenny has said that if all goes well, almost all public health restrictions will be lifted by July. Meanwhile, in Ontario, we have Premier Ford still agonizing over whether or not to open schools. Uh, Reflections on the reopening and the pandemic.
4: Katie. Well, I feel like we've almost got a Goldilocks situation here in the sense that I got to say, if I were if I were Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, I would be staying up at night, hoping that the numbers were going to work out and the vaccination roll was going to be sufficiently uh, robust. And his scenario kind of relies on everything working perfectly. Even one thing, say there's a sudden delay in vaccines, say there's an outbreak somewhere that, you know, requires a, a, another another lockdown because the counts are going up. You don't want to raise expectations. And I think that that's actually what you're seeing coming from the Ontario Premier Doug Ford who is, I think he's been burned before by reopening or promising reopening before it was really safe and having to walk back, you know, a promise which gets people more disappointed than had you not promised it in the first place. So I do wonder if he's being um, more cautious than would normally or even be necessary simply because he doesn't want to get into a situation where he opens up and then has to close back down. Whereas on the other side in Alberta, you have Jason Kenney who just seems to be done with this whole pandemic thing and as far as he's concerned, you know, magical thinking is going to allow his province to be open for Stampede, which I believe even the Stampede organizers were kind of taken aback to learn mm-hmm. that they would possibly be going ahead as scheduled.
1: Mm-hmm. Niga and Yugo are in Winnipeg, obviously, Manitoba. Uh, they're in Manitoba. The reopening is probably the last thing on Premier Palace yeah, I, mind right now. We're I don't know hiding. what you're talking
3: about. You're all, you're all just talking a language I don't know anything yeah. about we've been on lockdown for about a week now uh, my daughter's been homeschooled uh and you know we're remote learning we were just announced in the new york times as being the one of the worst hotspots in north america uh and you know we've got uh, a bungling prime premier that is battling every day calling the leader of the opposition uh swear words in parliament uh, coming out and announcing restrictions, making these big announcements saying we're going to announce huge restrictions. And then just, They're just minor ornamental changes, you know, reducing the percentage of people who are allowed in malls, for example. Uh, you know, while there, we have finally con- closed non-essential businesses, um, it, it took so long that now the amount of variance in the province and the fact that we have the highest uh, positivity rate in the country and arguably, in North, across North America, we have a massive issue here in Manitoba in terms of not even being able to talk about opening up. And when there is any opening up, it'll be just minor, small restrictions that perhaps we could be looking at Father's Day, where we could be sitting with our father outside or something like that within our own family. You know, hearing about these openings, I hope that people learn that the ongoing choice of this right-wing conservative premiership going from Ontario West... Uh, has led us to paths in which we have to go more and more into lockdown, and that while we may look at the United States and I think that 's what Alberta is doing is seeing this massive aggressive reopening uh, people playing sitting at hockey games for example, I think is one of the worst possible PR roles for to- people talking about lockdowns um, is a uh, you know, it's going to be uh, ongoing that people are going to be wanting to open up and everybody wants to be the first premier to say we 've eradicated the virus or that we 've eliminated the virus. That's not going to happen by opening up businesses. It's going to happen by more lockdowns, by more aggressive attempts. And all we have to do is look at First Nations. I mean, many First Nations here in Manitoba are the only places where there are no COVID cases. And it's because of the aggressive lockdowns. People have have accepted that their rights have to be uh, control. They have to be limited. And the the biggest communities, this is what my column is about today in the Winnipeg Free Press, the biggest communities that are fighting those vaccines, saying, you know, we don't have any uh, wishes to have these vaccines, are often Christian, rural, southern communities. Those are the ones where COVID is going the worst.
1: Okay. Yeah, an interesting point. Uh, just a last point to you, uh, Katie, on the COVID front uh, this mm-hmm. morning, and, and I spoke with the minister, uh, there's a whole issue of, the, of this committee, this advisory committee, recommending mm-hmm. that the quarantine hotels be closed. The minister wouldn't say yes or no. She says she's got to consult with the provinces. Uh, the public health officials say they wouldn't say yes or no. Uh, what do you make of it?
4: Yeah, it's really interesting, because if you read the report and sort of what it was, it isn't so much that they're saying, hey, you know, everything's going so well. Let's let's close down these quarantine hotels. We don't need them anymore. It's more saying, you know what? This was kind of a noble experiment. It hasn't really worked. There are sort of conflicting timelines. It's not really clear that it's any more effective or more efficient than just having people quarantine at home if that's what needed, because there are all these exceptions. And the, again, the timeline doesn't really match up what's required for a proper quarantine. So in that sense, I can kind of understand why um, why the board is advising that, you know, not really working, so perhaps we should pull the plug on it. At the same time, the government is, of course, under pressure from the... uh, The prime minister is under pressure from the premiers to uh, talk about reopening and allowing more travel within Canada, there's also the constant issue of international travel. Are our borders too tight? Are they too loose? Should we, you know, quarantine people further? Should we quarantine them less? What about uh, what about tourism over the summer? So there are. I, I don't really blame the health minister for maybe wanting to uh, uh, do a little more consulting okay. and think this, give this one a good think before coming out with a uh, a pronouncement on how to go, how to proceed further.
1: Okay. Well, the two of you, I want to thank you. Uh, we covered a lot today. I want to thank you, and we'll speak again. Stay safe.
4: You too. Have a good Watch Thank you.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer. On behalf of all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching, and have a great weekend.